0: Tylen Douglas-Gabriel here with you today. Uh, Some of you know that we have a new book that's going to be released. In between all of our broadcasts and audios and visits with Michael, we have time to write books. (laughs) The next one is called The Hidden History of the Grail Queens. And many of you know that we have written other books about Sophia and the Holy Grail. And we actually had an experience with the Spear of Destiny. And then your team michael was Mm -hmm. doing some amazing research with the spear of destiny which got douglas very inspired to go further because it's kind of competitive around here when he sees you're getting (laughs) a little bit ahead he charges off and starts his own research so you did and of course i got to read the book and help edit it and it's phenomenal and we wanted to use this opportunity to share with michael what you've written because michael hasn't heard about it yet
1: i haven't well if you cross back and forth And play the glass bead game, you're crossing the bridge back and forth to our other work. You'll note that this is directly in line with that. But when we were on this side over here where we talked to all of our AIM compatriots, we were working with uh, what we always do, which is vetting things, looking for the truth. And so someone sent us something to analyze actually a bunch of stuff. And we involved an engineer. Oh, Lord, we should have known better than that. You know, I like to deal in far-off myths and histories that nobody can contest. But no, no, no. An engineer wants to measure it, <laughs> weigh it, wants to see the analysis, and wants to make sure that the spectroanalysis is exactly correct. So uh, we were vetting this uh, amazing spear, not thinking too much really about any of it. Uh, we also vetted a grail at that time. We also vetted... Uh, Templar, all kinds of findings mm-hmm. and stuff. we we and get coins call- and- coins. We get called into all kinds of weird stuff. So, and we also vet writings like we we're just vetting an article just then and telling you what's good, what's bad about it. So we ask Michael McKibben and his researchers to take a look at this because if you don't know, he's got a very religious background, and he loves this kind of stuff, especially Russian stuff because the Russians are into the sphere of uh, longinus the spear that stabbed the side of Christ, more so than maybe even the Roman Catholic well, the Church. the
0: Russian Orthodox.
1: Russian Orthodox. Okay. What did no, I just, say? Just, just the, the Russians? Russians. Oh, the I mean, Russians! I
0: mean, oh, be- no, <laughs> <Russians.
1: laughs> no, no Muller's a Russian. I am sure of it. I read his report. So uh, what we started doing is looking at this, and we looked at the history, and all of a sudden we came across things in history, which I, myself, being a historian, I'm shocked I didn't know, and Michael was revealing things and finding documents I could never find. And we're reading this going, holy moly, maybe the historians who go nuts and write special books on the spear of destiny and whoever holds it controls the fate of the world and all this kind of stuff and blah, blah, blah. And the And What's, you know, the spear that's in Vienna and the spear of Maurice and the spear that Hitler desired, and all this stuff. We've studied it all. We know the people who actually write some of those books. So we think, you know, I thought we were all that me Myself, the conclave where Sparta's can be. Michael shows us we hadn't even looked in a certain direction, at probably the most viable candidate for being a possibility for being the true spear of Longinus, the centurion who stabbed the side of Christ. So we asked Michael to look into it, and, it, and he looked so hard. And then at a certain point, we I think we pulled you off on something else, and mm-hmm. you didn't get to finish. And I picked up the project and said, look, I deal in myths and icons and and imaginations and legends. I'm just going to put them all in one book. Now tell us, Michael, when you started looking, what was it that uh, got you to find the Spear of Antioch when everybody else seemed to have ignored it?
2: It was the carbon 14 test that was run on the lance. And it was proven that the head of that lance was Centurion from the first century. Centurion from the first century. And that the, and then the other piece of the research, which was uh, interesting, was that the, the, the uh, shaft that it's on right now is mid seventh century. And so the question is, who put a different shaft on a first century spear? But the other thing that uh, stuck out uh, from the test was the the, uh, testing uh, organization, which was uh, an archaeology group, uh, I think it was in Spain, um, said that this was the finest preserved first century centurion spearhead that he had ever seen. And he was quite excited about it. Uh, And so uh, we definitely had... A, a an artifact if not a relic uh dated to the time of christ and for it to have been preserved so well he even said somebody had obviously revered this object because it was well taken care for and um uh, i'm looking at it right now so that was intriguing uh and then uh i uh from a Methodist and Baptist background, decided uh, as an adult to uh, uh, become an Orthodox Christian, which is the Eastern Orthodox Church. And uh, specifically, I came into Orthodoxy through the Antiochian Church, which is the Church of Antioch. And um, if you know your Bible, you know that Antioch was the first place where the believers in Christ were first called Christians. And so after the persecution that began against the church in around 70 AD uh, with the invasion, I think it was Titus, uh, the church fled from Jerusalem and, and pretty much set up headquarters in Antioch, uh, as the, and, and St. Peter was the first bishop of Antioch, before he was a bishop in Rome, by the way and uh and so uh, i was I was somewhat familiar with that part of the history and we do know that many of the most revered relics from the church in jerusalem went to antioch and were cared for in antioch so it's highly likely highly possible let's put but that way that the the spear that pierced christ's side would have been sent to antioch out of jerusalem in order to preserve and protect it and and, and uh, uh take care of it. Uh, And so at some point it looks like a new uh, uh, shaft was put on it. And that dating from the seventh century is also interesting because that was when um, Antioch fell into um, uh, uh, Muslim hands a number of times over those centuries. And Antioch finally fell for the last time until uh, uh, much later in history. To the Muslims, uh, at about the time this this shaft was put on the the spearhead, and uh, it's it's uh, it's possible that the church buried the spear at that time, and where would they have chosen to bury it? Well, it's quite logical that they would have buried it in the Church of Saint Peter in Antioch, uh, and that is in fact where uh Peter Bartholomew had a vision at the at the uh, in the first crusade of the the lance and and he and his patron and uh uh Raymond of Saint Giles who was running the first was the leader of the first crusade went and pulled up the spear that that's the story it's a quite well documented part of the this story is is the, the discovery of the spear and the vision was if you put this Uh, spear up in front of the army, you will overcome your 10 to 1 disadvantage, and you will win the victory. And they actually did that, and they did win. So all these things started uh, becoming quite intriguing that this could, in fact, be the Holy Lands.
0: And a lot of folks will remember it was very exciting because we were pulling uh, evidence and putting together newsletters, sending them out. But then the story stopped. It stopped for us because we had other things we had to attend to. You know, taking down the deep state is a full-time job. So we had to put um, that to bed. But um, it really um, as often happens in the conclave, when we get together we feed off of each other's energy and inspire one another to look in other directions. Which Douglas then began to look at the history of the grail because it is attached to the spear
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yes and the incongruency that this spear that uh, led the victory in antioch led by uh, held by the leader of the first crusades raymond uh, of toulouse raymond uh, what's he the fourth or whatever he got a lot of names anyway the leader of the first crusades and then he went on to uh, what was it Acre, tripoli uh, jerusalem conquered jerusalem with the spear in front of everyone believing that it was the reason they were having victory after victory. And then it was one last battle where it was used as a rallying point called Ascalon. And after that battle, after this thing was revered and after it had led to such amazing, miraculous victories to win Jerusalem for the Christians in the first crusade, holy moly, they accomplished their goal because of the spear,
2: it was lost. Incorrect. Correct. It, it just disappeared from history.
0: Well, I thought the Nazis took it down to Antarctica. Because <laughs> you know the stories, as you always say, always ended in Nazis, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of speculation that the, the Nazis oh, yeah. thought that they had the Spear of Destiny and felt that that gave them and entitled them to control the world.
1: Well, when you're researching, like we kept doing, we looked at his wife, uh, what's her name? Uh, Alvira of Castile. Right. Uh, and later Leon. And so we looked at her and said, well, hmm, gosh, she went on the Crusades with him and took her young son and even went through this big deal of uh, making him Alfonso Jordan because he was baptized in the Jordan and doing this ritual with the whole thing and blah, blah, blah. Well, with the Holy Lance. With the Holy Lance. And he refused, Raymond refused to become king of Jerusalem. He could have become That's king right. of Jerusalem. He refused. Why? Because obviously he was connected to something moral. Anyway, was now he had... I don't like, think
0: I heard that last word. He was connected to what? Something
1: moral. moral. He had a good moral heart. He was. He also made a vow to the Pope that any relics that he found in the, in the Holy Land, he would give to the Pope. And so we said, oh, well, that's what happened. He couldn't admit that he didn't want to give up the spear, so he lost it. Well, we that's okay. But in research... You keep looking, you keep looking, you keep looking. Finally, one day I come across this little article in a weird place accidentally, and I read it and I go, you must be kidding. I've been studying history all my life and I did not know that the Spanish had a vow that you could take if you're a Catholic. And if you were uh, either a queen who was a virgin or a princess who was a virgin and you were part of the royal house, you could take a vow of the infantato or the infantata and you basically made, you're, you're like a religious person now, and, and you then can carry the responsibility of holding and protecting and becoming the custodian and guardian of holy relics. And it was also uh, people, widows. And widows. Widows. And so these women, some who remained in northern Spain and southern France especially, but some went to literally like, uh, um, like... Alvira of Castile went with her husband. Leon
2: in Castilla.
1: Yes, she, she later, Sancha of uh, Castile and Leon was her like grandmother. So she ended up being this uh, very important person. But anyway, she, we believe, came back to Europe with her young son when he was uh, very young and brought with her the relic of the Spear of Antioch and then kept it in this... Um, she would be, of course, married, but she still took the vow could still take the vow in this uh, stream of the infantato. And what happens then is because at the time, especially in France, there was so much Muslim incursion in Spain that they actually had a thing uh, where there was like a crusade against the Muslim incursion in Spain. And um what happened was they had to keep defending these sites all over the place, and they kept attacking the religious uh, churches and and monasteries and so on and so forth. So the women... And stealing the relics. And stealing the relics. So the women kept these in the very most sacred places, sometimes in convents, sometimes in secret places in churches, sometimes in their own crypt. Mm -hmm. And what we noticed with the Spear of Destiny after it had been examined by the literally one of the top weapons museum, um, what do you call a person, a, a assessor. He assesses these things. He, appraiser. Appraiser. And we looked at all the studies that were done on this spear. Uh, it was very clear that it was insinuated that it had to have been kept in something like a vacuum-sealed container, kind of uh, held in great religious either awe or sacred uh, object, uh that it literally was in a vacuum sealed. And he references perhaps a museum because it didn't decay. It didn't decay at the proper rate. So we literally chase this back. And if Alvira of Castile, later Leon, brought it with her and you can follow her travels and it literally leads you right to Leon and they put it into her uh, uh, grandmother's um, crypt, her crypt, her Her sepulchre, her tomb, which was uh, vacuum-sealed and then was sealed with wax so that the body wouldn't decay. We believe that the spear was held there because many other things ended up there, including the chalice of Leon and the um, the, uh, uh, Sudarium and uh, all these other different things that were the blood relics
2: of Christ. Can I interject uh, on that particular crypt? uh, I believe it was one of our researchers that first found that uh, church and uh, they none of the historians could understand this one carving on the side of this tomb because it looked like uh, a scene from the first crusade with a holy lance being held up in front of the army and nobody could explain why that would be on that crypt that
1: was the thing that 100 percent convinced me because i studied that and studied it and it took a long time, I don't know, a year. And I had to study some of the craziest things to figure out what that is, what those symbols are and what they meant. And they are not just what they appear to be. They are, they had to do with matriarchal worship of a sky god, and we put this in the book. And this matriarchal cult that was in uh, Occitania, the northern part of Spain, the southern part of France, was literally a great great cult. And this cult was the birth of the grail mysteries and the grail stories. It was the birth of, like um, Eleanor of Aquitaine and her nieces, courts of love, the courts of romance. The story of El Cid is written about uh, uh, Elvira of uh, Castile's relative. Uh, when, When it comes down to it, the grail stories Even with the early Spanish Grail stories, when they were writing about defending their castles and defending their religious beliefs and the blood relics of Christ against the uh, the incursion of the Moors, the Muslims in Spain, this was a cult, and the cult was somehow matriarchal. And so we did more and more research on this, and it just became absolutely absurd that I was basically uncovering things that... 20, 30 years or more of very serious research on the grail basically started to pale in comparison to what it was that we found. And so we put these things together in this book. Now, we took the providence of the lance and we went ahead and said, okay, this, the spear of Antioch, we're just going to let you make your, your mind up. You can either take it back to Jerusalem with Alvira's um, son, uh, Alfonso Jordan, and uh, another crusade. And you can see that he died there and perhaps somebody took the spear at that point and then it went to Connet, and then it entered into the bloodstreams of Europe and so on and so forth. We believe it was also kept in the imperial regalia of the Habsburgs, uh, both at Nuremberg and Vienna, but that they didn't know what it was.
2: And there could have been other copies of a spear that were brought in contact with the original spear and as we know from uh from the history of relics once a uh, an item touches another relic it too becomes a relic of a lower uh, class they call it class two relic so it's possible that these copies that you kept talking about were in fact blessed by the original and therefore would have been revered as well
0: I found that your research, Douglas, was so incredibly fascinating, especially when you s- revealed the maidens of the wells.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Wells, I can understand why you yes, might think that, especially I- since <laughs> you have Dr. Wells' Wonderwater, which is literally the source of all of the ancient myths that then merged with the Christian blood mysteries and move into our time with an amalgamation that we call the Great Holy Grail.
0: Of course, you can't say Wonder Water and then not say something what it is, and just briefly, that's when we began our journey towards what you see today. We knew we needed to get our frequency and our vibration at a much higher rate, and we couldn't find anything in this 3D realm that did it. So we found the secrets of perfect calcium and perfect silica and found a way to infuse it in a water that we drink daily so every day through this process we were pinging to this higher note if you can imagine so we're pinging and I'm as you you don't see me but I'm lifting my hand up to the sky bringing it down so we're just pinging like a sonar ping ping because I'm wanting to take us to a higher place of viewing the battlefield and the world around us so eventually Because of that, so many things began to open up for us because then the universe responds to you and begins to send that to you. So for
2: all the engineers who are listening to this, she's really talking about resonant frequency.
0: Yes, yes, and it works. And so so that was the wonder water. Now, folks, you don't need to get the wonder water because we're taking you where we've been.
2: And you can't get
1: it anyway. And it's an experiment.
0: Okay, so anyway, continue on about the maidens of the wells.
1: Well, first off, the infantado and the Courts of Love, and the Romance of the Rose, and all these things you go, well, wait, 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 wait a second. Tylo and myself have written three books on the goddess. How come every time you study the grail, it comes back to the female? And so I started looking from that angle like I did before, which led me into a lot of my research uh, on Sophia, And then that coincided with Tyler's research in Sophia and thus our books. But the point is, is I'm looking at the grail and I'm now looking at it from the point of view of what we just learned with the providence of the spear of Antioch. That it was more than likely given over to the hands of the female guardians of the blood relics of Christ. Any blood relic of Christ, whether it be the chalice that caught the blood, the spear that stabbed the side, the veil of Veronica that touched the blood on his face, it, uh, the nails and the cross, the cross, there are many things that have to do with the blood of Christ. Each one of them is a holy grail, according to the way that we're looking at this, because they are blood relic mysteries. Well, it all of a sudden struck us,
2: wait can a second. I, can I interrupt you, Douglas? Because yes. one thing that uh, resonated with me is that uh, at, the, at the end of the first crusade, they had successfully captured Jerusalem, and they would have taken possession of all the most sacred relics uh, at that time. And so it's understandable that they were taken away from Jerusalem to protect them. And since those were uh, from the Toulouse area and he was married to somebody from Castilla and Spain, it's, it's very logical that the most revered relics would have come back to Southern France and Northern Europe. Or northern Spain, to be protected, to be protected,
1: and not in the hands of the Pope, who was being attacked left and right, right, uh, and literally had to move the the seat from uh, you know
2: uh, Rome to France. But since they had that deal with the with with the Pope before the first Crusade, it's possible that's why we haven't heard a lot about it, because they didn't they wouldn't want to have involved a lot of uh, Vatican lawyers in making claims on these, so they just revered them for themselves.
1: And basically the Catholic church doesn't out experts to say whether something's real or not. And as you say, all you have to do is touch it to the real thing and whatever touched it becomes imbibed with that energy. But now it struck us. Oh, well, let's take a look at the whole thing. If the Holy Grail, there were previous myths, you know, uh, from the Mab- Mabinukian or from the Celt or the Irish or so on and so forth, many myths, the uh, Norse myths or whatever that prefigure a lot that happened with the Grail mysteries, that you take the Christ mysteries, Jesus Christ, and what happened, Joseph of Arimathea catching the blood in the chalice. Well, that was the first stories of Joseph of Deboron. The very first stories of the Grail were about Joseph of Arimathea and the Lance of Longinus, and they always go together. So we're going, uh-oh, if we're studying the Lance, we have to study this, the, the, the Grail and we have to study the Grail procession. We have to study the old pagan myths, and we have to study the Christian blood myths, and then we have to study a new anthroposophic or Rudolf Steiner's version of the science of the Grail so that we can put this into, how does this relate to our own physical body? And so we started looking at that. But the first thing that struck us was this. Of course, anything that touched the blood of Christ would have been given to Mary, the three Marys, wouldn't it? I mean, that mm-hmm. doesn't even take... a Right. Th- that's not even debatable. Well, how come no one's ever mentioned that? <laughs> hmm. Think of that. Of course they would have laid... Longinus became a follower. He was the first follower. The blood of Christ came down. His spear touched his eyes. He became no longer blind and said, surely this must be the Son of God. The first Christian, the first witness of Christ, the first certainly convert was Longinus. That spear would have been given to... The spirit would have been given to... Mother right. Mary and the right. three Marys. There was no doubt about that. Right. The chalice, if there was one, would have been given to her. Everything that was touched with the blood of Christ would have been given to her. Now, oh, that's right. She moved to Ephesus afterwards and created the stations of the cross. What are the stations of the cross? It's the way of Jesus' suffering, the, the, uh, the path of suffering it's called, the uh, via dolorosis.
2: By the way, that's in the Roman tradition. The Orthodox don't have that same... Uh, tradition on that subject.
1: But they have a much bigger reverence for the spear. right? And they actually use a replica of the spear during their Holy Communion to cut the bread because it has to be only the spear of Longinus that cuts into the body of Christ, which is the bread becomes the body of Christ. So the Eastern Church has great reverence for the spear. But right. she, when uh, Mary was at Ephesus, she created what we would call the rosary and the, uh, the stations of the cross as the way, okay, what did Christ's group call themselves? The way, the truth, and the life. That's who Christ was. They called themselves the way. And what is the quest? It's the way. And what is the way? Well, if you're a convert, you can become, you're a killer, you're a terrible, horrible murderer like Longinus, a Roman centurion, who killed people with that spear who that got converted and then became the guardian of the grail, the guardian of the blood relics. And they're going, uh-oh. And then you look and you find all these saints are all modeled after Longinus and that there's this, the, the, the militants of Christ, the soldiers of Christ, the soldiers of God, one order after the next, many, many dozens of orders all based upon replicating what Longinus did. So what happens with Mary? They start to do what Christ said, do this in memory of me, the Last Supper. So they have the chalice, they have the spearhead because we believe that the spear staff broke at the time it stabbed the side of Christ, and that all that was left was this small spearhead called a Nova Magnus uh, Hosta, which means a a new great Hosta. And a Hosta was only held by a centurion who was in charge of 100 men. And they were passed from father to son. And even the Roman leaders had their special spears. And then we started looking and there were spears everywhere in every religion, everything. Everything had to do with the spear. And then we found the craziest thing of all, Spears are, meteorites are called spears, okay? So when you see a meteorite, sometimes blood rain happens. One happened in uh, 2012 where they took 50,000 tons of blood rain fell from the sky after a meteorite came over the city of uh, Kerala, India. You can look it up, C-A-R-A-L-A. This has happened numerous times. Mentioned 70 times in history. And so we're going, wait a second, the pre- the grail procession has a spear, like a meteorite, and dripping blood, uh-oh. And so we thought, well, we, we researched that. Well, there's no way around it. You must see, when you look at the procession of the grail, that in the sky, a meteorite bringing blood rain could be considered something quite similar. So we started to see there were physical phenomena, there were ancient pagan phenomena, there were mythological phenomena, ancient Norse phenomena, uh, I mean, Norse uh, mythologies. We saw all of these things congealed, but at the heart of every one of them, in the grail procession, who carries the grail? Only women. And how about the grail king? Oh, he is stabbed, he's wounded, and he's ineffectual, and his kingdom has become a wasteland. Oh, what about his dad? Oh, he's dead on the byre, and he has a he has a spear stabbing him in the side. And when one of the Grail Knights pulls it out, he then can go on to eternal life. So you have all the mysteries, and the the head that's on the platter in many of these mysteries, that's the head of John the Baptist. You you can find all of the Christian mysteries are a culmination of the pagan mysteries. But what was not ever there, and I couldn't ever figure this out until I saw this thing called The Elucidation, a prequel of a poem to the first stories of the Grail. There are many stories of the Grail, by the way. There's not just one. There's 50 different stories. But this story tells a different story. It tells of the maidens of the wells. And it says that throughout all of Europe, everywhere there was a well, everywhere there was a fairy hill, which usually there was a well on the fairy hill, that at this well, there would be this beautiful maiden, the maidens of the well, and that they were somehow to do with an accord that humans had with the fairy realm. That as long as we respected them, that when we were traveling, if we would come to that well, we would be nourished by the water through a golden cup, that the maiden of the well would rise up out of the maiden, or, or somewhere, she just appeared, could come out of the well, give you something to drink, and it would be whatever you wanted. And if you wanted something better, or something different, she'd give it to you, gave you all the food you wanted, everything you wanted. So this universal hospitality is the nature of the grail. It feeds you what you need. Some people only get the host each day. Some people only get, uh, they get whatever they need. And so in the stories of the grail, you're fed anything that you want. It doesn't matter, and it's served up by invisible hands. But you will see the spear going through the room with nobody holding it and out its tip Blood drips, and it drips into a grail, some type of a grail. Well, that is an image of Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth becoming Christ. And it's an image of the spiritual nature of Jesus Christ coming from east to west. And that's what we see in the grail stories. It just comes riding into the room on the air. Some see it, some don't. But as soon as people even hear of it, they go on the quest to find it. Well, that's your higher self, of course. But the point is, it was the female lineage that not only held the blood relics of Christ, literally, physically, but also the true transmission of what we're talking about is the spiritual transmission. So in this book, we talk about the maidens of the grail. We talk about everybody who held the spear or any type of the spear that was claimed to be the spear that stabbed the side of Christ. The different grails, the different blood grails, the different Jesus blood lineage, uh, blood um, relic grails. We show all of that. The infantado, the way that uh, the uh, crusades against the Muslims in Spain, the way that that played out, the way that the courts of love all play into it. It all goes into this book and it all makes sense for the first time. And so we take some of the newest research of some of the best grail writers like... Caitlin Matthews and John Matthews. And we take it even a step further and we show that it all is extraordinarily simple. We just have to follow the Grail Queens. And if you follow the Grail Queens, you will find the true nature of the Grail and you probably on the way will find the best claimants to being the Spear of Longinus and finding the claimants to being the, the Cup of that was used at the Last Supper and other such things. And if you want to consider them to be true holy grails and you want to consider them sacred, that's up to you. The point is, is that the real grail is in your heart. And as soon as your heart can do your thinking and as soon as your thoughts can begin to feel that I will know how does how does he say it? I will know the truth in you and me, and know what is truly real. Van Morrison says, and that's the that's the that's what it's about. Your grail Van
0: is everything, your heart. everything in the end comes down to a good Van Morrison tune.
1: Amen.